Welcome to Kidney Chats by CureGN. My name is Tina Krager, and I'm a project manager at the University of Michigan. This podcast brings you the latest research, lifestyle impacts, and other information of interest to those who have or love someone with glomerular kidney diseases. CureGN is a large cohort study funded by the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases. More information is available at curegn.org. That's C-U-R-E-G-N.org. Today, we are focusing on prednisone and kidney disease. To lead us in our discussion, we have two expert guests. We have a guest interviewer, Shannon Mulroy. Shannon is a kidney advocate, educator, and a donor. Shannon is deeply involved in advocating for kidney health. She became involved when her teenage daughter developed a rare and serious kidney disease that required a transplant. Shannon is a tireless volunteer, helping to raise awareness of kidney disease and the search for treatments and cures. Our guest expert is Dr. Keisha Gibson. She's the Associate Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics and the Chief of the Pediatric Nephrology Division at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. In addition to treating pediatric kidney patients, Dr. Gibson studies lupus nephritis and other glomerular diseases. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Tina, and welcome, Dr. Gibson. It is a pleasure to be here today to interview you, and hopefully the listeners will get some really valuable and much-needed information. Really a pleasure to be here. Okay, so Dr. Gibson, I'm going to start off today with a basic question in general about steroids. What is the difference between steroid resistance and steroid dependent? And thank you so much for asking that question because we as physicians certainly understand that definitions matter and they matter because once we have defined a patient response to treatment a certain way, it definitely directs what we do next and what we advise our families in regards to what their treatment options may look like. So when we think about steroid responsive versus steroid resistant, specifically what we're trying to figure out is will this disease achieve or can we achieve a remission status with prednisone or prednisolone? We generally put a time limit around that. Most of our children that have steroid responsive disease will respond within four weeks. Um, Others may take up to six weeks, but certainly if we get to six weeks and we see that there's been no change in the amount of protein spillage or proteinuria, then we label those children as steroid resistant. And at that point, it becomes clear that continuing steroids is really only going to carry more problems and concerns with toxicity without achieving uh, the efficacy that we're looking for. And so we start to look and recommend um, alternative therapies. For children that do respond, so we're watching um, proteinuria response after starting steroids. And if we see that response within four or six weeks, then they are labeled as being steroid responsive. From there, there are additional patterns of behavior that we that we look for. Behavior meaning how this disease responds in uh, uh, response in uh, uh, in the presence of steroids. 
And so if we have a child who has demonstrated an ability to go into remission on steroids, um, we then would like, we then want to see how long can they stay in remission once we wean those steroids. Uh, so if we have a child who, let's say, has responded to steroids within four weeks, we work with the family on a schedule to slowly taper them off over an additional four um, or six weeks, depending on where you are in your nephrotic syndrome journey. And if you're able to stay off the steroids for more than two weeks, but then you relapse, then we consider you a frequent relapser, in particular those that have had more than um, two relapses within a six-month period. We would consider you a frequent relapser. We then clearly have those children, though, that uh, can't spend any time off of steroids without uh, experiencing a relapse. Um, this sometimes happens during the tapering process, so we haven't even gotten them fully off steroids, and uh, some of those children can um, have experience a relapse. Or those, and there are others that do manage to uh, come off of steroids, but within a couple of weeks have relapsed again. We would label those children as steroid dependent. Their remission status is dependent on them maintaining exposure to steroids. And then I'm sure we can definitely talk about where we would go from there, but uh, to address your original questions, those that's really how we think about steroid resistant versus steroid responsive. And then if they are steroid responsive, um, do they classify as steroid dependent, a frequent relapser, and what we hope um, for all of our children is that they don't relapse, right, once they come off steroids. That's definitely what we would love. And certainly there are probably about up to 15% of the children with nephrotic uh, syndrome that we care for that fit into that category. Thank you, Dr. Gibson. That was an excellent uh, response to that question. When you said 15%, is there a typical percentage for each of them? Is there a certain amount of percent that are steroid resistant or steroid dependent, or is it just basically you know, random? So Shannon, thank you for that question. It's an excellent question. Um, I will tell you that many of us that are taking care of children with nephrotic syndrome do feel that the incidence or prevalence of steroid-resistant nephrotic syndrome is expanding. Now, rather that's because there's more disease versus um, we're diagnosing it more, um, you know, it's up for debate. But in general, most of the studies that we're able to complete to get an idea of these percentages would um, suggest that uh, anywhere between 20 on upwards to 40% of children with nephrotic syndrome will display steroid-resistant um, treatment patterns, um, which is definitely concerning. The traditional teaching, though, and what we expect in childhood is that up to 80%, 80 to 85% of these children will be steroid-responsive. So let's talk about the tapering process now. How does it work, actually, and why is it necessary to do tapering? Thank you so much for that question, Shannon. So there's a couple of scenarios here. One, I will start with the fact that um, some of how we taper is where art meets science. If we have somebody who has demonstrated that they're steroid resistant, the consensus in our community is clear that the steroids need to be weaned off and that we should look for alternative therapies. The how and how long to taper 
you're not going to find a lot of consensus there. And some of that may be driven on individual characteristics, what's happening with the child. Certainly, if there are, if there's evidence of steroid toxicity, that's going to really push uh, your doctor to move the steroid taper along faster. Um, most of us, you will see, will taper and not just stop you know, from our typical, what we might consider high dose to off because uh, we want to make sure that we give the body time to wake up and start making its own natural steroids. So your adrenal glands make, uh, make steroids. And when you are receiving outside steroids, those adrenal glands um, tend to slow down their own production. And so if you take away this external source of prednisone too quickly, um, that could send your um, system basically into shock with really low blood pressure, a lot of electrolyte abnormalities could be a very dangerous situation to stop them too abruptly from a high dose. So that's the reason why if you're going to taper, tapering slowly um, is, is important or having a taper schedule rather is important. Um, in regards to um, where there's consensus in the how we taper, um, there's um, some really good data helping us to understand uh, uh, how to taper steroids during the initial episode of your nephrotic syndrome. So when we first diagnose a child with nephrotic syndrome, you'll notice that we empirically, meaning that we start treatment without completing a biopsy um, to see if there's a response to prednisone. And if there is a response within four or six weeks, um, within four weeks, um, then we would continue a taper over four weeks, generally dropping to a lower dose um, alternate day for four weeks, and then we would stop from there. Or some people choose to treat at that high dose for six weeks and then taper at a lower dose for over an additional six weeks and stop um, from there. Um, so there's good consensus around that. Um, there's fairly good consensus around what to do during a relapse. Um, so if we have a patient um, and we get the call from the family because maybe they're doing home monitoring or we're seeing them in clinic and see that um, our child is in um, relapse, we'll start steroids at a standard dose. And then once they go in remission, give the family a tapering schedule from there. Um, and while there is some growing consensus around four week schedule, understand that there is more data that needs to be um, collected and gathered for us to truly understand if there's one tapering schedule that works better than the other. Again, the only consensus is that um, the steroids should be tapered. If you're starting at a high dose, it should definitely be tapered. The how and the how long is up for debate. Excellent. Now, does that same uh, measure apply for adult patients as well? It really should apply to anybody who's on um, what we consider a high dose of steroids that um, it should be tapered. Again, the concern there is to make sure that we're giving the body uh, a little bit of time and a little notice that we need you to wake up the factory to increase the what we call endogenous of what your body is making production of those steroids, um, just to make sure that we're avoiding um, those um, really dangerous um, side effects of what we would call um, an adrenal an adrenal crisis, um, removing those steroids away too quickly. Okay, that makes sense. You know, I was just thinking while you were speaking, 
Why typically is steroids the first line of treatment for nephrotic syndrome in both pediatrics and adults? It seems to be that the first thing that a doctor prescribes is prednisone. Why is that? It's a very interesting question. You know, some of this might be historical, uh, you know, steroids or, well, I'll take even a step back, um, medications that impact that part of your immune system, that sort of steroid part of your immune system was the very first treatment for um, nephrotic syndrome. So back around World War II era, it was noted that children that had nephrotic syndrome tended to go into remission whenever they uh, contracted measles or were exposed to somebody with measles. And it was well known at that time that children affected by measles had a reduction or a downregulation, if you will, of one part of your immune system um, called your T cells. They're one of the very important cells in your immune system. And so it was postulated at that point that perhaps if we use a therapy that would reduce T cells, that maybe this could be a mechanism to treat nephrotic syndrome. And it was known at that time that ACTH, which is kind of on the same pathway um, of the steroids that we use, um, a little bit stronger, um, could potentially uh, put these children in remission. And in fact, um, outside of the development of antibiotics, this was one of the most important um, findings to really increase their survival of these children with nephrotic syndrome. And for the longest time, you know, steroids from then on has been one of the mainstays of treatment. Um, and even when you look at some of our newer therapies that are coming um, down the pike and a lot of the studies that we rely on to help guide um, treatment decisions, very few of these medications are given in the absence of steroids to do what we call induce your remission or to try to bring about remission. Most of the drugs, a lot of the drugs that we're looking at now are to help us stay in remission off steroids. Um, so there's just you know a little bit of an absence of data um, to understand how to use some of these other medications in the absence um, of steroids being your first line. Well, great. I'm actually happy to hear that because as a parent of a child who has FSGS, Steroids was so traumatizing. Even hearing the word prednisone kind of makes our hair stand up on our arms, to be quite honest. And just knowing that studies like CureGen are doing the research gives me hope for the future that there will be better treatment options and ultimately a cure, of course, but better treatment options for those living with nephrotic syndrome, better treatments other than steroids, to be quite honest. So that brings me into the next question. What are the typical side effects of steroids that, you know, the most common side effects? So thank you so much for that. I will tell you that we look at prednisone as being kind of that necessary evil. Um, we understand that our, our goal is to try to get people in remission as quickly as possible, but it definitely comes with a cost. Uh, commonly when we start, uh, um, prednisone, especially, or prednisolone, especially at the doses that we're using, uh, very early on, we'll uh, see a rapid increase in the appetite, 
Um, sometimes our children gain weight really, really quickly. And because they're gaining weight really, really quickly, they can develop horrible stretch marks. Um, we see the sweetest, you know, the sweetest young child who would never hurt a fly just turn into a very raging, moody um, individual that families can barely recognize. Um, medically, you know, we understand that prednisone and prednisolone uh, cause you to hold on to extra salt and water. Um, and so we see early on issues with, um, with blood pressure. Um, you know, we could talk a little bit later about some of the long, longer term side effects, but I would say in the early period, those are some of our um, more common uh, side effects. And for our teenagers, um, we often we'll see a lot of problems with um, uh, acne control. Um, so very early on, um, there are several uh, different types um, areas of toxicities that, that we may see. I remember very distinctly about the side effects. And to this day, my daughter, who just turned 21, she has them all over her legs. We don't talk about it, but at the time, it was so devastating to see her put on all this weight as a teenage girl going through uh, puberty, which was really difficult because I did notice some stunting of her growth and developmental um, for her body type. It also stopped her period. Um, that was difficult because I thought about the long-term effects of that. And I recall people even asking me questions and I'm like, she's 15. That's not even something that even crossed my mind. But with the side effects, the moon phase as a teenage girl was so devastating. She won't even look at her pictures anymore. We, she can't even look at a picture from her time of uh, being on steroids. And the side effects of the stretch marks are so brutal that I recall it being like she was mauled by a tiger. One time we were at a beach and I remember this boy asking her what happened to her legs. That was so hard for both of us just to hear that because I saw it, she saw it, but then to know that other people out there see it. And that's something that can never go away. That's just a side effect from pregnizone. So you know, I'm very passionate when it comes to, you know, pregnizone and hearing the side effects because it's such a trigger and the mental toll that it takes on not only the the pediatric patient, the adult patient, and the family members, the siblings, the parents, and everybody around you gets affected by this, not only with the side effects that you can physically see, the moods. My husband would call my daughter, her name is Julia. He would say, oh, we have Moody Judy. You know, it was just, it would try to try to make light of things, but I know she just, it wasn't her fault. This wasn't something that she controlled. And uh, that's just part of living with nephrotic syndrome that people don't understand, you know, how much it really affects you. I mean, yes, you can see physically the changes, but just the mental part of this and, um, and knowing that others around you may see this and don't understand what you're actually going through. The, the hunger, which we end up obviously calling the hangry. I felt like she wanted to eat everything, including the walls. There was, I mean, could never get enough food in her, but yet trying to balance a low sodium diet was, was so difficult. And um, if, if you have an opportunity, the, the listeners out there to listen to the podcast that we did with Judy Lester, the clinical dietitian from UNC hospitals, she talked a lot about the balancing of a low sodium diet when you are 
um, dealing with a kidney disease, but yet add prednisone. It's so hard to manage when you have to control that low sodium, but you want to eat the house. <laughs> Very difficult. So uh, thank you again for that uh, information, Dr. Gibson. So that kind of brings me into the long-term effects of prednisone. What you know is the biggest concern that you feel the long-term effects of somebody who has to be on prednisone for, for long-term or for life? You know, Shannon, I really appreciate hearing uh, the perspectives that you're bringing forward. Um, I, I think it's so critically important for um, you know those of us that are on the side of the table, helping to guide our families to really hear about you know really the impact, the true impact um, of our therapies, and you know some of the things and opportunities that we have to make sure that we're providing. A, a little more, a little more guidance, um, a little more warning um, about you know some of these toxicities that they may experience long term. Um, and again, this really pushes why we're working so hard to get better um, in our arsenal of medications and treatments to uh, keep patients off steroids. Um, these long term side effects are really concerning. So you already mentioned the weight gain um, and that weight gain that goes unchecked for a long period of time, we understand leads to problems with diabetes um, and chronic high blood pressure, which of course have a direct impact on long-term kidney health. We worry about the long-term uh, long effect of steroids on the cardiovascular system, um, early um, development of inflammation in your blood vessels leading to um, early onset cardiovascular disease. It's a huge concern. For our young children that uh, have a lot of time in front of them um, to try to achieve their maximal growth potential, you know, long-term steroids truly uh, can put um, an obstruction to them really achieving their full their um, their full potential here. So we see a lot of growth stunting um, with um, with long-term steroids. So again, another another concern that will manifest itself um, emotionally, um, can definitely have a huge impact um, psychologically um, on our patients. Cataracts, changes in vision, another concern. And then as these children are uh, you know, trying to get through puberty, we certainly, as you mentioned with your daughter, um, can see interruptions and um, hormonal responses in how our children are developing. Steroid exposure, chronic steroid exposure, um, are, you know, are quite massive and it really, really pushes us um, to work hard um, to try to find ways to keep our patients in remission off, off of them. Thank you so much. That's exactly what I needed to hear as a, a parent of somebody living with nephrotic syndrome. So when you mentioned these long-term side effects, one of the things that I think about also is bone density. Now, I just mentioned before my daughter's 21 years old and she was first diagnosed at the age of 15. So she's been on steroids for the, the high-dose steroids earlier on before she was determined to be steroid-resistant. And now she is post-transplant, so she's on a small, low dosage for the rest of her life. So as a mom, I think about bone density. When, you know, we know that steroids has an effect on that. In my thought, I was thinking, is it maybe important for her or people like her to maybe get a baseline bone density test, perhaps maybe even every 10 years? Maybe she does want it 
20 years old, then maybe 30 years old. So this way, by the time she's 40 years old, that, you know, she doesn't fall and break a hip or something because you would have a baseline. And in knowing that I have a family history of osteoporosis and being a female puts her at higher risk and certainly being on steroids put her at a risk. What are your thoughts about that? Great question. I will tell you, this is another area where uh, there isn't a lot of consensus on in regards to when do we do that first bone density uh, study, how often we should do it. I do think that this is one of those opportunities where care has to be individualized. Um, and so just, you know, some of the things that you've already mentioned are very important to consider. Um, one, you know, family history, I think definitely plays a role to the, um, the, the amount of steroid exposure um, will matter. So if we have it may be a very different experience for somebody who's an infrequent relapser or even somebody who maybe has two relapses per year, but maybe they're spending less than two months of the year exposed to steroids um, compared to somebody who's on steroids for six to eight months out of the year, um, right? Those are gonna be the patients. There may be certain features of their disease and their um, treatment response that put them in a higher risk category. And so we're gonna to wanna to be more aggressive with diagnosis, surveillance, and with anybody on steroids, um, we really wanna make sure that we're thoughtful of the sort of the preventative side. You know, What are the things that we can do um, to help protect and improve bone density? Well, making sure that patients are on vitamin D and calcium um, when they're on, um, on uh, therapy with steroids, I think is very important. Um, we really encourage um, our young people to be as active. I mean, part of the reason I, you know, really love being in pediatric nephrology is because I feel like I'm in a position to be able to advocate um, that these kids maintain as much as possible a sense of normalcy and that they are active and getting an opportunity to uh, participate in team sports. Um, weight bearing um, is another important uh, tool um, to use to help prevent some of the um, bone uh, bone density loss that we see um, in, in our patients. So, you know, again, answer your question, there really is no um, specific consensus. Um, I do think that they're um, sort of classifying the risk um, is going to be individual from patient to patient, um, but it needs to be a part of the discussion, no matter who the patient is, is one of those things that should be discussed at some point in the disease journey and hopefully early in the disease journey. Right. That's exactly what I was thinking. More like if it was discussed discussed earlier on. And the same, obviously, when it goes to getting checked yearly by a dermatologist as well, just to you know keep that sort of baseline and make sure with the high increased risks of any type of skin cancers and whatnot with long-term uh, use of steroids. But in any event, Dr. Gibson, I really appreciate you taking your time to talk with us today. Your information was so valuable. We just really appreciate everything that you do for the nephrotic syndrome community. And we on the other side really appreciate all of our families and all of the support that uh, is given to um, this very special group of young people. We thank you both for guiding us through a discussion about steroids and kidney disease. We invite listeners to share this podcast with others who may be interested family, friends, fellow patients, and anyone else. If you have suggestions for future topics or comments on this topic, please contact us at curegnpodcast at umich.edu. To learn more about CureGN, or if you are interested in joining the study, visit curegn.org.